on the other hand, if you, if you sample, if we had a series of Parkinson's disease patients here, and you, you talk to them at different stages of the disease, and you ask them, okay, what is the most, you know, the most problematic part of your life? What is the, your symptom that you really you would like to get rid of? The motor symptoms are not going to be necessarily what they will talk about. I mean, right. they will talk about all other types of symptoms that they have, uh, which can then be a broad range of autonomic dysfunctions or cognitive dysfunctions yeah. or, or even later, that's why, those psychiatric problems. And, right. so, so, and when we get to that part then, when we get there, the reason why those ones are so problematic is that we do not know the circuitry for that. So this is where we get stuck. The human brain is the most complex structure in the known universe, and we are in the middle of a scientific revolution to understand its inner workings. Join us for a conversation with world-renowned neuroscientists as they visit Rochester. I am Dr. John Fox, director of the Del Monte Institute for Neuroscience at the University of Rochester, and you are listening to Neuroscience Perspectives. I'm John Fox, director of the Del Monte Institute for Neuroscience, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Neuroscience Perspectives. Today we're going to talk about Parkinson's disease. Uh, extraordinarily, 90,000 Americans will receive a new diagnosis of Parkinson's every single year. Today, we have a real Parkinson's expert. My guest is Dr. Yolan Smith, who's a professor of neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. Yoland, welcome. Welcome Thank to you. Neuroscience Perspectives. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. So listen, let's, let's get stuck in here on Parkinson's and we'll come back. I, want to, I have a whole bunch of things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about your role in, in publishing. You and I work in a journal together and also your path to science. But let's dive into Parkinson's to begin with. Uh, what, why is, is there such an extraordinary increase in the number of people uh, being diagnosed with Parkinson's? This is, you know, this is the, the disease of, of, of aging, right? So I, I guess that the issue with those disorders is that, you know, it's the same thing for Alzheimer's. Really, we, we hear a lot about Alzheimer's disease, which is really growing at a faster pace. It's just essentially, the, the, it's pretty basic, right, is that we, we're living longer. Um, but our brain does not follow. I mean, th that's essentially what's going on, right? Is that we're just kind of moving and we have, obviously, we have really all good medical treatment to keep us alive and, and having a long life. But somehow and the brain is, is degenerating at some point. And then depending, you know, on the, on the people and depending, of course, there is really, there is always a composition, a mix of predisposition for these disorders, right? And, and, and also, a component of aging, so like predisposition. Clearly, there are people who might have been exposed. You know, we talk about Parkinson, for instance, toxin in the environment, right? right. The, the environment plays a role, of course. You know, it is important, but it's not. It's not the cause, right? I mean, you, there are people who can be exposed to environmental toxin for all their life and will never get Parkinson. So, on the other hand, if you have a predisposition to have Parkinson and you are exposed to those, then you become. I mean, so. So all of this put together really kind of create essentially and really environment in fact where that right. may help, you know, kind of advance and and this is, you know, but I think aging is definitely the main, you know, the main Thank reason you. why it's going so you fast. You know, here here in Rochester, we, we there's a, a center here just like you have at Emory, a Udall Center mm -hmm. for Parkinson's disease, one of the NIH mm -hmm. centers. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's been a real concentration on environmental toxins because right outside the city of Rochester is one of the green gardens of the United States. So we have a lot of rural counties and there there's a very high prevalence in the farming communities, the rural communities 
of Parkinson's, probably around uh, environmental toxins and fertilizers, I suppose, of the 70s yeah, yeah, and yeah. 80s and that. Is that a big component? Oh, yeah, it is. It is, definitely. I think that has been around. That's why you're, you mentioned, I think this idea has been around for quite some time now, right? In the 19... In fact, it has been, you know, one thing that has generated, you know, a big, a big bump into the Parkinson, the, the role of environmental toxin in Parkinson. There's been, been this discovery in the mid-1980s of this neurotoxin that is um, called MPTP, right? This neurotoxin that was found by inadvertence, you know, as a, as a contaminant of a batch of synthetic heroin that really some, unfortunately, some young uh, people from California had been taken and then ending up, you know, overnight, essentially, in, in emergency rooms in, in throughout the Bay Area in California with, with severe symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So, and the, um, and of course, you know, because they were very young and they did not have, you know, they were not people who should have Parkinson's disease, right, at least right. the majority, and there was, and um, then the question was what was going on, essentially, and, and then finally, after having been um, find out, isolating, you know, this compound from this synthetic and all the whole story that came with that, then they realized that the synthetic heroin, like MPTP, you know, this neurotoxin, is very similar chemically to some of these of this toxin that we have in the environment, right? That right, are very right, right. and indeed, you know, and fertilizers, you, yeah, and weed killers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and if you if you if you expose neurons in the brain that they generate in Parkinson, like the dopamine cell, which is the main, you know, this is the main. So if you expose these neurons to these neurotoxins, I mean, they're going to die. I mean, right. they are very sensitive. This is a very particular population of cell that have different properties, and this has been studied, and they are very sensitive to this. So. So that's why, you know, I mean, yeah, the role of memory toxin is, is important. I right. mean, it cannot be... And now, you, you mentioned dopamine, and I think, you know, the average listener or viewer would be thinking, dopamine, now, that's the reward stuff. Mm -hmm. but, but it has an, another extraordinarily important role, right, in, in, in movement and motion right. and that, and, and in very specific neural circuits. Would you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. So dopamine, indeed, that's right. Dopamine is, 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 is as you mentioned, is critical right, for reward are very important but there is, that's why the component is that the dopamine is depending on where the dopamine is located and and so there is component of the brain that are essentially regulated by dopamine but these are deeply involved in movement control so so these are different brain regions I mean, these are different components of brain regions and and those ones are the ones that get affected in Parkinson's disease. in fact the area of the brain that really is regulated by dopamine and um, receive a lot of the of the the motor input, if you want, really, are the first areas that are targeted in Parkinson's disease. So this part of the brain gets hit, and then the dopamine neuron that are selectively, really affecting those regions of the of, of the brain are degenerating. The other one that you talk when you talk about reward, those neurons really will be eventually affected, but much later in much the process. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you have indeed, you know, Parkinson is not just a, uh, a motor disorder, right? So clearly the motor component kicks in and you, you can see that and people will have some motor deficit. But Parkinson gets very complex and can have really definitely an emotional component, a psychiatric component, a cognitive right. component. And all of this is probably due in part, you know, to dopamine loss, but maybe dopamine loss in other brain region than the area that control motor. So right. then you talk about the prefrontal cortex, for instance, which is heavily involved in various aspects of, of cognition and, and various psychiatric disorders. So, so when those regions, then when those neurons that are controlling dopamine cell that are involved in reward gets affected, then people start having 
neuropsychiatric problems and for instance you know impulse disorders so people will start doing things that uh, and will, hallucinations hallucination too, right? hallucination on, yeah. impulse disorders but then really compulsive gambling fine people do think that they would and these are people who would have never done that before this is not like you know you are a gambler and then you just become a worse gambler but it's just that people start doing things that they have they have never, never done. had so, any interest and in that is course. probably related in part to dopamine but also other type of chemicals in the chemical yeah, changes in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have a colleague here, and he would say, the great the great thing about Parkinson's disease. You never say there's a great thing about a disease. Is that that the circuitry is so well understood, unlike many many other diseases. Like we we can't say here are the central nodes mm -hmm. that are going awry in schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But in mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease, we know this, and mm -hmm. and so he would say it's in some ways it's the most curable. We know a lot of the causes. They're environmental, at least, you know, the precipitants. Mm -hmm. We know the circuits, and we also know the chemi chemistry that's involved. Do you share that? Yeah, hope? I share that when you talk about moder aspect of Parkinson. That is perfectly true, and this is why, you know, if you look about this, Parkinson, in fact, if you are, and you're right, I think, to use the term, and I use that as well, as well. So, I mean, if you get, if you have to get a, the, the disease, a neurogenic disorder as, you, as we get older, I hope that I will get Parkinson and not get really Alzheimer or other type of disorder right, because yeah. simply because we have, you know, there are good, really relative good treatment that can help people live with the disease, hopefully. And, um, and that is fine, you know, as long as the disease is really largely moderate. Okay, largely yeah. it is all moderate. If you have moderate symptoms, you know, they get severe and so on. You can t you can be taken care of. So these are the, the tremors, and the, the tremor, shuffle, the, and, shuffle yeah. the the slowness of movements, all of that. Yeah. That can be taken care of, you know, by different therapy drugs, and also, you know, there is deep brain. Well, stimulation. Well, I was going to ask yeah. you about deep brain stimulation, yeah. right? Because the circuits are so well understood, yeah. you can actually put electrodes in and target those areas. Yeah, you can do that, and you and that will be taken. That will take care of some of the moderate. But on the other hand, if you if you sample, if we had a series of Parkinson's disease patient here, and you, you talk to them at different stage of the disease, and you ask them, okay, what is the most, you know, the most problematic part of your life? What is the, your symptom that you really, you would like to get rid of? The moderate symptoms are not going to be necessarily what they will talk about. I mean, right. they will talk about all other type of symptoms that they have, uh, which can then be a broad range of autonomic dysfunctions or cognitive dysfunctions yeah. or, or even later, that's why, those psychiatric problems. And, right. so, so, and when we get to that part then, when we get there, the reason why those ones are so problematic is that we do not know the circuitry for that. So this is where we get stuck. So we are, at that level, you know, we are as we have as limited knowledge as you mentioned schizophrenia or other type of like, psychiatric disorders. We are at the same level. Uh, so, so that may, and that's why, you know, there is a lot of research now in Parkinson's disease, including ours, that we try to take advantage really of, really of our research to try to go after maybe like in our hand, cognitive impairment, try to better understand, you know, why, why people with Parkinson develop some mild and then more severe cognitive impairment. So what are the circuits involved into this? Right. So, so that's an area which is growing quite a bit, yeah. Let's switch gears. Mm -hmm. uh, we could talk about this all day, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, but let's switch gears. Uh, you're, you're a prolific publisher of scientific papers, more than 250 papers in the literature mm -hmm. and counting. We won't get into all the, I mean, extraordinarily well-cited body of work. Um, but the other piece of the publishing world that you're involved in is one that you and I actually work together on. Mm -hmm. we, we are co-editors of, of one of the major journals in the field, the European Journal of Neuroscience. 
Um, and, and, and papers really are the product, they're the output of a scientist. That's the measure of the work that you've done. I had a mentor who used to say, uh, if it's not published, it doesn't exist. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that's really mm. true, because otherwise, how are people going to learn that's about right. what it is you did? Mm -hmm. Can we speak a little bit, though, about the publishing business and maybe the differences between a society journal and maybe the more commercial journals that are out there and, and where you are on that? This involvement in, in the um, journal is is definitely for me as really almost as important as my research. Now I think it is it is really fundamental, and, and there are always you know different reasons that you you would think essentially for someone from the outside is why would someone you know spend his time you know doing that? Why what, what is the what is the point right, right. of doing this? But and in fact, and I would probably have asked maybe myself the same question maybe I don't know ten years ago. I mean without having been, but what, once you get involved into the once I got involved into this more deeply. And I started interacting with you and other colleagues, and so I start to also knowing, you know, the purpose of the journal and the importance of the journal in so many levels of, of uh, advancing, you know, neuroscience, but also educating the community and so on. So, so the, the one thing, of course, about and, and and also knowing the difference between society journal versus other kind of journal, which are more like for-profit journals. The society journal, like EGN, you know, is. The goal of this journal is really, yeah, to publish great science, advancing science, and inform the neuroscientists about. But it's also to really to use the funds that are generated by the journal, right, to to subscription and so on, to help you know so many other things in terms of education, in terms of helping you know um, underdeveloped you know countries in developing and underrepresented minorities. There are so many areas where, through the the Federation of Neuroscience Society that they can that the journal can help, and and that's really the main mission of the journal, right? Our our goal here for us as society journals is to is first of all is to first of all is to help neuros advancing in neuroscience. Then we must be very rigorous in the kind of the the data that we put out. Right? We cannot just you know, but also is to help scientists to publish their work, right? This right. is our goal. We are there to help them, and we have, you know, we have the kind of the privilege to be at the entrance to this, you know, so that because the papers come, you know, come to us, and then we have to make a decision really how to handle this. But this is, but what the way that we see that is that really we will do everything we can to try to get this paper out. Okay, yeah. so that's the idea, and we'll work together with the authors. We'll, we'll provide the input as much as needed, you know, to try to to make it, and that's our mission. So, so our mission is not, you know, to go after and then see this and read the abstract and then decide, okay, so that's not flashy enough, you know, for us. We're not we're not going after that. So, this is not the this is not the goal of the journal, and that is this is not what we, what we do. Completely different philosophy. Right? Completely You're different there, philosophy. There to advance the science, the science, not to go for the flashy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I, this is a really important point, yeah. is that, the, that, yes, journals make money, but in the case of the society's journals, that money goes back into the scientific enterprise. It doesn't go to a shareholder and so on. And again, there's nothing, not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with the corporate approach to these things, but, but an absolute distinction for the society journals is where the profits are going. They're going back into the community to support scholarships, workshops, the meetings, like our Federation of European Neuroscience Societies meeting, yeah. the yeah. FENS meeting. And yeah, and, and that's yeah. something which is not, you know, which is unfortunately really not necessarily, uh, people don't, don't know as much. If you're not involved in a journal as at the level of the editors of the journal, right, you do not really appreciate that. I mean, it's not like you don't have the, the, the 
the background and everything to, to make this. But but this is pretty striking. And I, I don't think, you know, yeah. in our case, EGN is not different from other society journals. I mean, it does the same thing for fans that other journals will do for the society. But but that's the big, and that for that reason, I think it's it's our really, personally, I feel that it's my, as a PI in my lab, and when come the time, you know, to, to publish some of my papers and so on, definitely EGN will be there. We need to, we take the response to try to publish some of our work on a regular basis right, in right. EGN to help, you know, to help the journal. As somebody who's published more than 250 papers in all the top journals in the, in the world, you know, your expertise, your experience, your, your ability to write a sensible paper, the fact that you're taking those expertise and giving them back to the community through your work as an editor, I think that it says a lot about you. It's a, mm -hmm. and, and I think it also, you'll find that across, we're talking about EGN because that's our journal, mm -hmm. but, but you'll find that across all the society journals, it's senior scientists with a lot of expertise who are shepherding the process. And that's, and that's, right, that's, that's really, really crucial, yeah. yeah. No, no, that, that's important. That's definitely something that I will, I, I really cherish very much. And I, and I really feel it is, it is important and I definitely, educate because I think what we need to do as well is to is to educate the young generation about this too not only but definitely I think this is something that can get lost and and and, and I really take responsibility to try to at least talk to our students you right. know to our graduate students and organizing you know just workshop to talk about this publishing you know what it is and where where will you send your journal and that's really happy people can do whatever they want but at the end of the day I think it's important that they have this this knowledge about agreed, you know, agreed, and, and, yeah, yeah. and then you know they can, but it's important to have the background, then decide, and uh, but that's something. You no, know, that's something which is really yeah. critical. Very well, I, I'll often uh, you, you mention that too. Have younger scientists ask me like, why are you devoting so much time to doing this mm -hmm. uh, editorial work? And I always say, say it's a little bit. So it's it's been a few years since you and I were in graduate school. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. And, <laughs> uh, for me, doing the editorial work means that I, as well, you know, obviously you read the work in your area in Parkinson's disease very, very carefully. And I do that for the work that's close mm -hmm. to my own my own area of expertise. But editing in a journal, you read everything. That's You're right. reading across every single domain. And, and for me, it's like being a permanent continuing education. And I think it's made me a better scientist mm. over time. No, that's a great point. Yeah, you kind of, yeah, you kind of learn, learn from the, it, it serves at the same time as a, as a source, you know, of, of, of knowledge, right? I mean, yeah. it's not just a, Really, you get you know you get a good knowledge about about neuroscience going on in, in many different fields. That's a great point. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Let's talk about you because I you know people uh, people who come on neuroscience perspectives I always want to ask them like where where is what was the trajectory, and of course you know it'll, it'll be becoming clear to our listeners that that you you didn't grow up in the United States of America, <laughs> but you grew up in another part of the Americas. Tell tell us about Quebec, mm -hmm. where you grew up, what. How did you end up in science, and what was the trajectory through to land you in Atlanta as a professor at Emory University? Yeah, yes, that that's interesting. Right, our uh, I just had really uh, on the lunchtime having a uh, meeting with the graduate students, and it's that uh, talking about you know what, how we end up there. So yeah, on my hand, that's why. Right. So I think as you mentioned, of course, I, I'm not from the U.S. So I'm French Canadian. My uh, first language is French. I've been spending particularly all my life, except for the last 27, now I've been, at the, I've been at, uh, in Atlanta for about 23 years now. So, but I uh, spent that in my life in, in, in Quebec, in Quebec City. And, and, but I come, you know, my, my trajectory to science, so I come from a very, both my wife and I, in fact, who have been together forever. I mean, we come from very tiny villages on the extreme 
east part of the province of Quebec, so which is the, the what we call the Gaspésie, which is the Gaspé area, which is along the Atlantic, mm -hmm. and very tiny villages, about a thousand people, you know, each next to each other. So I did all my uh, high school there, and then of course for these small villages, then you need to move out of that when come the time for for college, you know, you need to get out because there's not then this is where you know I, I moved to. Um, to Quebec City, and then in Quebec City there is one one university, which is Laval University, which is a French French university and and large, you know, about forty fifty thousand students. So wow. this is where we end up, and um, and then at that time, you know, things are maybe like like many many students essentially. I wasn't I did not know I did not have research in mind. Of course, at the beginning it was not research was particularly for me, not having grown in the city and everything. Research was in in the small place where we come from. I mean, this is far away from the big center, you know, we don't. So, but, but on the other hand, you know, I discovered that and, and, and I remember that the click started, you know, I was, I was in the biology, maybe major doing biology, general thing, but I wasn't interested in human, humans. I needed to do something related to human health, right? So it was, of course, medicine is one thing you think about. Okay, medical school might be good for me. And, uh, but then I had this course and I remember that course I took as an elective course during a bachelor degree during my, I think it was my third year. It was a neuroscience course. It was just given there and I took it just because it was related to somehow understanding the brain, right? Human thing. And this course has been the click that made me think about neuroscience. Not, I mean, human health then was one thing, but then neuroscience became the pillar of that. Yeah. And, and, and then I started, then after that, I started digging a bit more about it, started to try to know what can, what else can I get in here. And then I realized that, okay, the next step was to try to find a, a, a people who do neuroscience. And I went to a, a, an hospital where there was a center for, for neuroscience research. And, and the center was very, it was a small center, but very focused on Parkinson's disease and basic ganglia, which are the areas of the brain affected. Then I, I, I yeah, I started there, you know, and uh, I loved it. And I, I had a very good, mentor very i mean the mentors of course that's one thing maybe to plug in here which is important is that to be really for any any anybody essentially at any step of life we need good mentoring i mean without mentoring we cannot we cannot do it at any levels i mean and in terms of graduate education that's postdoc whatever you need good mentors and and this has been any this has been lucky to find that and people have guided me and then and then after that did my PhD and then move and then I spent a couple of years in Oxford um, in the Medical Research Council unit there where I get another really outstanding mentor where we became really Dr. Paul Bollum who became Well we friends. have to mention Paul <laughs> who's a former editor-in-chief yeah. of our journal the European Journal of Nurses. That's right. A very close friend of Paul. Yeah Pence. very close friend and we had a good time and then after that, you know, I, I went back to Canada for about five years and, and there was in 1996, there was this opportunity that I was, I was very, I mean, I did a postdoc with, uh, after Oxford, I did a postdoc with Malin DeLong, who is a very well-known uh, neurologist, you know, in the field of Parkinson's disease. And we talked about deep brain stimulation, who has been a pioneer in, in, in pinning that. So I went to, I went the postdoc with Malin. And then in, in 96, you know, he had the possibility for me to move back. He was at that time the chair of Emory University. And, uh, and there was a possibility for me to move there. And, and this was, you know, this was too good to be, to be true. So we decided to make the move and join neurology department there and the uh, Emory Primate Center. And yeah, and we've been there, you know, for since then. And this has been probably, yeah, the best decision I've made. I think I've been, it has been a fantastic time at Emory. We love, I love the Emory community. We love the neuroscience community. 
I'm very well, even if I'm not a neurologist myself, I'm very much integrated in the neurology department. So I have a lot of colleagues, you know, who are neurologists, you know, at different people who do research, people who do clinical work, people who do, uh, who do really more neuroscience basic work. And, uh, and we have the, the way that the system is organized, we have a lot of possibility for interacting and exchanging together. And, and I'm also at that stage as well. One part of, of this that really is, is critical for me is also teaching and, and mentoring, right? I, I think we feel, we all feel that, I'm sure, as we do our research, but also the other part is what is really rewarding for us is to be able to train the students, right, or the postdoc, and, and see them on their hand, you know, grow and become, you know, become who they are, right? Well, let, let me ask you, I, I, and we see a lot of our PhD graduates now choosing not the academic route, choosing to mm -hmm. walk away from the research enterprise. And of course, there's a big uh, sucking sound as the big data firms, the mm -hmm. Googles, the Facebooks, take the PhD students that would formerly have gone down that route uh, into, into their more corporate world. Are you worried about that? And what would you say to a youngster looking at that fork in the road and saying, you know, I could go over into this corporate world and make a lot of money, mm -hmm. let's face it, Mm -hmm. Or should I stay in the academic track? Is there something that we should be saying to somebody to say, look, you know, stay the course, it's mm -hmm. worthwhile? Mm -hmm. Academic research, you know, is, is fantastic. Who can have a better job than what we do, right? I mean, yeah. we wake up every morning and our goal is to just to come and think about, you know, what are the next questions we want to. So, so there's no other job that offers you this. So, if you, so that's one. So I think personally what I feel is that, what I tell students is that, if you, have the, if you feel that this is something critical for you and you have this drive inside yourself, you don't have, you know, to come and then, oh, what, what do I do today? I don't know what I'm going. So if you come, you know, every day and you, you get to the lab and you get and, and you have this, all this thing driving you, that means that you have something inside you that is, you know, that is done for science, right? That's one thing where you should, because you need to have that. If you don't have that, probably you're not at the right place because you need that because it's an, it, we know, we know what the cons are, right? It's competitive, there is a lot of people, there is a lot of very, a lot of ton of people who will want, who will go after the same, you know, uh, funding that you will be doing, but, but you, there is place for you if you have that. Yeah. And then, of course, after that, you know, you need to, to take this and, and take advantage of that. Take, the, take your career, you need to take your career in your hands and move in forward, you know? You need to take the lead on your career right. and, 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 and go really positively and finally surround yourself with a good, a good team of people, taking advantage of the resources that your graduate program offers you, taking, making a network, you know, talking with people. You need to develop network. So you need a lot of things that you need to yourself to take care of. But if you do that, people will be pleased, you know, and excited to give you and train you and help you advancing that. Yeah. But you need to take the lead on your own career and you need to have this motivation. If you have that, there's no reason why you should not, you know, we should, you should not succeed. There is, play, there is place for you in research. I mean, that would be my thing. Yeah. Well, Yo-Yo, I think you said it. What better job in the, in the world is there than this? And I think that, that captures it really well. And it's obvious in you that that passion is, is alive and, and strong and, and long may it go on. And uh, the very best of luck with, with the work. Uh, here's to a cure for Parkinson's in our lifetime. And thanks for being here with us. On okay, it's a pleasure. Perspectives. Okay. Thanks a lot, John.